Okay, guys, let's get started. We um, a lot of paper again today. There's a, there's a new reading over there, which we'll spend the next couple of weeks on it. So, you know, I mean, as far as how much to read next week, you know, read all of it, read some of it. Um, yeah. Okay, today we're going to really kind of hone in on some of the things uh, that have been popping up throughout the readings. And we're going to just make it a little more explicit. But before we get to the reading, we are going to uh, a little more meditation insights from Johann Gerhard. Johann Gerhard, well, uh, his dates are there, 1582 to 1637. He uh, was a theologian and, you know, kind of a leading theologian, Lutheran theologian, but also wrote a lot on um, just kind of normal... Piety, you know, you know, you know, there's these Christian books, right? You got like the commentaries and like all the academic books, and then you got your kind of more down-to-earth sort of books. Uh, he wrote both of those kind, so he's a kind of a really unusual uh, theologian because he could really relate to the average person, um, but yet also like take on like all the theologians of the day. Um, Johann Gerhard, yeah, so, oh, by the way, there's, yeah, so there's a discussion guide, I'm starting with a discussion guide, I also handed out some hymns, uh, for whatever reason, I thought there was hymn books in here, so, they're not, I would have came prepared, uh, but that hymn thing you can just set to the side for now, we're going to get to that later, um, yeah, so we're just, we'll start at the beginning. Of course, you've got the, our picture of Katharina Regina von Greifenberg. And I intentionally left some of the German in here today because I knew Krista was going to be here. <laughs> no, I just, you know, I don't trust my German. I often will use Lutheran or uh, Google Translate just to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Uh, actually, this time I, don't, I didn't have to do any of that because it was... All of it was fine. Uh, anyways, okay, great. So, Johann Gerhard, contemporary of uh, Greifenberg, but uh, also just kind of, you know, just, I want to kind of, re- just kind of kind of stress this again about Christian med- meditation is not something kind of unusual, or it's a, uh, a, you know, new thing already back in the 15th and 16th century, 17th century, uh, just that's what Christians did. And he actually wrote, I don't know if I actually, I didn't put it in here. Um, he, wrote, he wrote A School of Piety. That, that's the name of this work, Johann Gerhard. And it is great. It's three volumes, so it's like, eight, yeah, I don't know, 800 pages or something like this. But um, the, the insights on, oh yeah, I did, right here, Schola that's Latin for school piety. All right. Anyways, he, he kind of helps us remember there's five means for kind of growing in our Christian faith. Hearing or reading God, the word of God. Receiving the Holy Lord's Supper. That's his language. Um, holy meditation. A zealous, diligent prayer. Um, and, well, I split the last one. And godly subjugation uh, and mastery of the body. The uh, 
So hearing and reading the Word of God, that makes sense. Okay, we know what that is. Devotions, your, your daily devos, quiet times. Um, receiving the Lord's Supper. By the way, though, the first time, though, the first line, though, is not just your personal piety, but your corporate piety. That means hearing, preaching. So the first two are basically go to church. And, of course, back in those days, the only time you really were able to read the Bible, unless you were very wealthy, was in church. Not everyone had a family Bible. Uh, at, at this time, though, Bibles were becoming much more uh, available because of the printing press. Okay, great. So, Could they read, though, generally? Yeah, uh, so the... Yeah, again, this is, all, this is all kind of the rise of the modern society, right? So more and more people were becoming uh, literate. Thank you. I was saying legible. Yeah, literate. Okay, but anyway, so the primary stress, though, was, again, going to church, hearing God's word, receiving a sacrament, word and sacrament. And then think about it this way, right? So I leave the church, and what am I going to be doing? I'm going to be meditating on what I heard in church and what I received in church. Okay, out of that meditation then becomes our prayers. And then lastly, we don't really talk this way, the mastery of our body. But that, of course, is lived out in good works. So living sacrificially, putting others before you. So, again, so that is an order. There's an order to this. And, of course... At the end, when you get to the end, guess what you do? You go back to the beginning. So this is a kind of a weekly scenario, in a sense. Okay. Now, he also gives eight kinds of meditation. In chapel, I read from Psalm 148. I know you guys were listening, but who was praising God in Psalm 148? Those who were there, by chance. Everything, absolutely everything. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I, no, I didn't look up the Hebrew, but I, I, just, I just wonder like, if there was more like, specific things. Yeah, I mean like the trees, the mountains, the hail and the storms, everything, right? Fire. The waters above the heavens. That's a whole kind of ancient cosmology reference. We won't get into that now. But everything, and then finally... Which, of course, though, as you, were you guys thinking about anything in terms of, like, days of creation as we were 148? So they go through the whole days of creation and finish with humanity. And then from humanity, it goes right to Israel at the very end. It, the whole point, though, is, is that uh, Psalm 148 really develops, uh, it was really helpful for us as we understand these eight kinds of creation because Johann Gerhard and then, of course, Katharina Regina von Greifenberg also echoes this. And she echoes this with the, uh, this term, occasional meditation. I brought up that in our first class together, which means basically the things of this world. I, I think last week, right, flax. We talked about the flax, yeah. So, okay, great. S- similar to that, but uh, Johann Gerhard kind of is more um, uh, systematic in this. So one considers the creator and his creation, One centers her attention on the Lord, herself, and her neighbor. Centers on on the two books from which we learn the knowledge of God, nature, and the scripture. 
Of course, they say different things, but not disagreeing. Because, of course, you can't just look at nature and then figure out the need. I mean, uh, the gospel. You want to get the gospel from scripture, from God's word. One centers on the days of creation and what God did. And, okay, that's, that's from Psalm 148. One reads the three-page book. He talks about this three-page book. Uh, one page is red, one is white, and one is black. The red page points to the blood of Christ that covers all our sin. White, the white page, so this is kind of metaphorical. So now I know, do your kids ever ask you what's black and white and red all over? Newspaper, right? Newspaper. Some kids have other ones, other other taglines for that. But um, now you can say, oh, Johann Gerhard's, I forgot which one is this. One, two, three, seventh, seventh meditation. I'm sorry. Six, six, six meditation. Fifth. Yeah, that's too bad. All right, and then one contemplates three things, the past, the present, and the future. That is something, too, that uh, I, I, so I've had people come in, and we talk a little bit about prayer life, and I uh, help them. I give something called the examine, which is really kind of a glorified highs and lows for your day, or roses, uh, roses and thorns. What went bad today? What went good? What bad? You ask God's help. What's good? You, you thank him for that. Um, but the examine also then looks towards the future. So you, it, it, this is a similar sort of thing. You, look, you contemplate the past. Kind of, you have to look. So this goes with remembering rightly. I think I might have said this before. I don't know. I, I say a lot of random things. But remen- remembering rightly is fundamental to how we understand the forgiveness of sins in our life. So a lot of people will say forgive and forget. First of all, that's impossible, especially if you've been sinned against. I mean, I think the most dramatic, like, you know, forget being sexually assaulted. No, you, it's impossible. However, um, forgiveness is not an annihilation of what's happened to you, but it's a, it's, a, it, it's, it's a remembering rightly because even the sin that you've committed or the sin that's been sinned against you is enveloped in the forgiveness of sins, and, and as Greifenberg would say, it's put into the wounds of Christ. Okay, so, um, so that's how you, you think about the past and remembering rightly, because those, because uh, Satan will try to get you to take your sins back, right? But the forgiveness of sins makes you then understand that what's happened Again, is an op- is is the the instance where God's love actually was shown through in dramatic ways. Obviously, we we do this with the crucifixion. We we look at the crucifixion as as a sign of God's love, not as a sign of our sin. I mean, it's both, but not primarily. We don't look at the cross and say, "I'm I'm a terrible person." You look at the cross and say, "We have a we have an amazing God." Uh all right, so the present and then, of course, uh, the future is, obviously, we look to the future in understanding that Christ has won the victory and there is our, our resurrection. We've, we've uh, through baptism, we've entered into the new life 
and the culmination or the, the full consummation of our resurrection will happen at, you know, after we die. So, again, these are things to contemplate. Again, these aren't, I mean, I, I don't, I do like versions of these eight. I don't, it's not like I go, okay, what, number one, number one, number two. I guess you could, but I don't have that much time. Which of course I should, I know, but. Okay, uh, yeah, then one looks, uh, one considers the God who looks down, so you kind of look up. You look towards God. This is kind of an imagery-based language. You look up, and then you you look up, and then you look you look down. But when you look down, you both are looking at God, the God who's above and the God who's within. What? Uh, and then finally, one meditates on the uh, on the spiritual clockwork, which I love. I love this. So you just go through the day. <laughs> I started with one for some reason, not twelve. But um, you know, I meditate on one God. At one o'clock, and then at two o'clock, the two natures. I, I've never done that before, but it has a whole list of like things you could possibly do. You know, for I can't remember number eleven. I don't know what he does for number eleven. But, but like the rest of them, you can kind of think, oh yeah, okay, one, three, Trinity, four, uh, the, the the four corners of the earth. Five is the Pentateuch, I think. I yeah. Okay. Anywho, so anyways, that, again, these are these are things that as you read the Greifenberg reading and re- meditate on God's Word, these are things that maybe tools to kind of help you. Uh, as Psalm one nineteen said last week, enlarge your heart. All right. So, in our readings, underlying subtext and sometimes completely explicit is the Lord's Supper. The culmination of life for Greifenberg is the Lord's Supper. Now, just to re- just kind of remind everybody, when she had this experience when she was 18 years old, when she received communion, she kind of had this mystical experience, and she, um, the uh, Deo Gloria, she has this like kind of um, spiritual sister that guides her along her way. Um, so she's, she's had that before, but she kind of comes back down to earth in a sense and spends the rest of her life really just kind of meditating on, on what the Lord's Supper means in her life. So that's kind of a subtext to this in all these readings is so... And she finally says it on page 146. How can there be greater delight and pleasure than drinking in Holy Communion the blood of the Redeemer out of the well of sweetness itself according to the command of his holy words? Some things about this quote. First of all is the delight and pleasure aspect. Okay, this is something where she, she, this is really important for us, especially as we, you know, we can really, desire Holy Communion and, and, and take pleasure and delight in it. It's not like it's, it's normal. And we'll see how she understands that. But also, too, then the well of sweetness. So that's I love that phrase. The well itself, though, is like this overflowing. Again, it's the 
the well is not a going to run out kind of idea. And then lastly, according to the command of his holy word. So this phrase is actually said in context of a defense of the two kinds. So Roman Catholics in, during this time were, you only receive one kind, just, the, just the, the body of Christ. And they say that within the body of Christ is the blood too, which is, of course is right, but Jesus says to eat and drink. And so she is, and she's telling you, well, of course, you're going to drink because the blood of Christ is uh, this delightful, pleasurable, sweetness thing. And why would you not do that? So it, it's kind of an, it's such a beautiful phrase, but it's in the midst of this argument for, hey, remember, she loves Lutheranism. Remember, she tried to convert the emperor a couple, several times. So she's like, I love being a Lutheran. Because not only do I get to eat the body of Christ, but I get to drink his blood. Yeah, Holly. Well, on 't this interesting though that how she does this is so positive this is I love this whole section I, I can't remember if it starts on page 145 it's like two or three pages and I love this section because she's arguing for Lutheran theology and practice but such in a positive way so she's not, she's not a Debbie downer have you guys ever watched the old Saturday night live skits one of my favorite Debbie downers she Greifenberg, that is. Um, so she's not really focused on the, the negative, meaning don't, we shouldn't be like that. She's focused on the positive. Isn't it great that we get this? And then the beauty and the truthfulness of it then attracts, well, theoretically attracts Christians to this for those who have been called by the Holy Spirit. So it's a great way of, of defending the faith that I wish everyone did. Because I consciously try to do that. Because if you spend most of your time saying what you can't do and what you're not, at the end of the day, you live, a, you live in the negative, or majority of the time in the negative, rather than you want to live your life in the positive and in, in the good things. So, Holly. Can you refresh our history of it? Um, that, like, she's still this point, but she's long after 15 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so this is, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so this is actually after the 30 years. Okay, so Martin Luther, the 1530 is when uh, the Augsburg Confession, that's kind of the like the first like real like, hey, this is who we are and that's who you are. And the Lutherans wanted to like say, hey, we're actually on the same page, but you, there's a lot of reforms that have, I mean, there's, there's some bad things happening. We need to reform. That was in the Reformation ser- uh, Day sermon that Pastor Mummy preached. Um, so this is happening 100 years after that. And after, after the 30 Years' War, so after 1530, lines are being drawn, and then people... Family members are, some are Lutheran and some are Roman Catholic. And then you got to throw in some of the Calvinists in there on the uh, 
western side of these lands, but the Thirty Years' War was kind of mainly between Lutherans and Roman Catholics. And finally, that was over, and they just said, okay, whatever the ruler's faith is, that's what it is. That's the land. So she fell into the Roman Catholic land, but was still very staunchly Lutheran. So again, she was she felt like she had to defend the faith in her her area, and she did it with you know with kind of this gusto, this beauty. So she's writing this not so much to convince people, like, hey, because everyone is Roman Catholic in this land. They're all like, ugh, here she goes again. But she does it in a way that's that's really really, I, I mean I, I think it's really nice. Um, yeah, then, um, you know, the lines just become harder and harder as time goes on, you know. Then Austria, this is kind of Austria, then Austria just becomes, what, all Roman Catholic, and then you, later on, once um, kind of official political ties become solidified, you have, you know, people from these other Lutheran lands to come and live in that land, and then eventually they will establish some Lutheran churches, but it's not necessarily native to that land. It's Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a lot more. I'm trying my best not to say more. Okay, so within this whole section, though, is the divine service, you know, church, informed her piety. Corporate worship and personal devotions went... Went hand in hand, not went hand in hand. The focus of her piety was the mystical union from heart to heart, Christ with each faithful Christian. This piety was distinctively Lutheran because it focused on reception rather than performance, which means that Jesus is the author of devotion. Jesus is the author of faith. It's not up to you, but the emphasis is always on God's word and sacraments. So now I have a little quote here from John Kleinick. Meditation has nothing to do with spiritual self-promotion and self-advancement, but everything to do with the enjoyment of God's grace and love. So nice. So as you spend your time in meditation, and, and Greifenberg will talk this way, and we'll find out that there's a, some other people that talk away, Lutheran, Lutherans that you might have heard of, Talk the same way of savoring God's grace. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So you go, so again, as you go to church or you spend time in prayer or read God's, God's word, you're going to a smorgasbord. You're going to a place to feast and to be cared for, not to show how, not, not, not to, not to show how, you know, faithful you are. Okay. So that's, 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 I like that. That's good. That's why, that's why it's good to be a Lutheran. All right. Now, what in the world is mystical union? That's not a word we use a lot. I mean, a phrase we use a lot. But um, it, it's basically Jesus in you. I mean, that, that's really, or the Holy Spirit in you. It's God in you. Um can read that paragraph there but it uh some people be like well is that really even lutheran yes it is it's uh it's explicitly mentioned in the formula of concord if you want to get real nerdy you can look that up fcsd so the formula of concord the solid decoration 
Article 3 sentence or paragraph 54. <laughs> Just if you want to look that up. Okay. Oh, yeah, I know. You have it on your phones, I'm sure. Yeah. Book of Concord. Yeah. Well, and, 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 but the, the important thing, though, is, is that this is, this is something really important because the, the forgiveness of sins does something to you, all right? Now, my favorite, one of my favorite phrases is a fart in the wind. I don't know if is that where it happens, it just kind of goes away. Some people think that is like the forgiveness of sins, like God just speaks it, and you just are kind of there. But like, does it actually, like, what changes about you, or what, what's going on? And what happens, you know, God forgives your sins, so he, he makes you righteous, but of course he doesn't leave you alone comes in you. Now, I mean, that's just the way we talk, right? Jesus is in my heart. God's in my heart. I mean, now, there's a fuller expression of that, but God is active in you. So God is living through you. Your life is God's life. Okay, so there's a variety of ways of how we understand this. Um, but, of course, being Lutherans, we understand that God comes from the outside into us. So our uh, mystical union is always from him to us. <clears throat> so it's, it, in, in the Middle Ages, there was this spiritual ladder you had to climb in order to, to get to God. And Luther was like, that is not, that is not good because I'm, I'm never going to be able to get up there. I'm a sinner. Sin ruins everything. And I'm, I'm sure if you spend a little time on our own lives and how we screw things up, we were like, yeah, that's right. We can't get anywhere. So, so this is the great thing is that um, the Lutheran understanding of like outside ourselves. So again, our meditation on God's word starts outside of ourselves, starting with corporate worship, hearing God preached word, receiving the sacraments. But it doesn't stay outside. It comes in. And then lives. So, um, so God comes down and joins himself with us. He clothes us with himself in holy baptism. So he unites with us in his word, clothes, clothes us with himself in baptism, and feeds us with himself in the Holy Supper so that we have union with the divine. Now, this union, this in us, God in us, what kind of image does she use? Well, she uses a couple, but one of them is the nuptial union. You know, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. You know, you get all this kissing business and, like, us melting together and all this really kind of passionate language in Greifenberg. That's nuptial imagery, nuptial, husband, wife, bridegroom, um, so she starts this entire, her first meditation on page 54. Her first title of Jesus is, To my most ardently beloved bridegroom of my soul. So she has this from the beginning. Now nuptial imagery is based on the marriage of Christ and the church, or Christ and the soul. It comes from such Bible passages as the Song of Solomon, Isaiah 61.10, God's people is adorned as a bride. Hosea 2.21-22, 
kind of the whole book of Hosea. I'm going to review some of these, just don't worry. Um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, it's like a marriage text. I think it really should be read at every wedding. Jesus calls himself bridegroom in Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5. It's the same story, but each of the different versions. And John 3, he's called bridegroom. I think by John the Baptist, though. I don't think he calls himself. I think John the Baptist calls him that. And then, of course, in Revelation 21, 9, Jesus comes to the marriage feast of the Lamb. These are really explicit on the nuptial imagery. Song of Solomon. Now, we, some of us studied that together a few years ago, and it's racy. Holy smokes. Um, it's, not, it, it's, it's God's describing of human love that's been saturated with divine love. So you actually have the Song of Solomon throughout Greifenberg's Meditations, and then you find out there's other people who love using Song of Solomon imagery. What we don't find out in Greifenberg, which maybe you have been taught to, is the courtroom imagery. Have you ever heard of that in terms of your salvation? And we're, we stand before the judge accused of our sins, and we have a, a defense lawyer named Jesus or the Holy Spirit, depending on which, how you want to use the word advocate. But of course, what happens at the end? You're, you're guilty, but guess who comes down and pays? The judge himself comes off the bench. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. That's a great way of understanding salvation. It's just not the only way, and it's actually probably not the, more po- it's not the most popular way. Uh, so this is another way of understanding justification, our life with Christ, and, and sanctification. All right. The only reason why I bring this up is because I know when you're reading these meditations, you're kind of like, what, what in the world is she getting at? This is strange. Okay, so and on page 152, she calls herself his bride, his queen. So, you know, I mean, it's, she wants to be, she wants to have this relationship. Um, now, the thing is, though, is that her adoration of Christ shows that she looks at Jesus' crucified body through his love and not through its kind of literal grotesqueness. I always think about the movie The Passion of the Christ. That was a big critique, right? Oh, it's so bloody, it's so gory. Now, it, it, it could be uh, more, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if anyone can actually live, according to the Passion of the Christ, you know, could, everyone, could anyone really live through that? I, I'm not, I mean, I don't, can someone live with like your, bones hanging out for that long? I don't know. But, um, so it could be even more grotesque than a literal thing. But the whole point, though, is, is that she's looking at the crucifixion not through kind of literal lens of her eyes, but her eyes have been reformed by God's love. So she's looking at something according to God's purpose, not according to just kind of what her natural eyes sees. And I think I might have mentioned this last week, right? With, uh, oh yeah, let's say. So um, last week, the weird image was Christ breastfeeding, right? Okay, this, this week, it's um, consummation of marriage. Okay, so Jody, I, you weren't here last week, but we talked about yeah. Jesus breastfeeding. 
Okay, so Jesus' wounds are not repulsive, but attractive. Because they're signs of Christ's love and passion for her. This is why she desires to passionately kiss Jesus' wounds and lie down in them. How would I have caressed and kissed, worshipped and adored the dear body? How would I have counted the wheels and have responded to them with a thousand love wounds? That, that's just an example, but there's been lots of other examples of this, right, throughout the reading. So, again, this is kind of like this real passionate bodily connection and relationship. Now, I have some long quotes here just because, one, I think they're really great, and two, to set the context of, of certain phrases. So, this on page 124, she talks about, the Jesus graves and the gardens, which is really, really a beautiful image. Um, but this entire paragraph is from the Song of Solomon. Now, the editor or the interpreter of the book makes no footnote of that, which I thought was interesting. Because she likes to footnote the scripture where Greifenberg gets things from, but she doesn't have any footnotes for that. Oh, that we too were such gardens and living Jesus' graves. I love that phrase. Living Jesus' graves. Okay, anyways. So if you you kind of skip down. um, Joseph could well say, let my friend come into his garden. And Jesus could answer, I am coming into my garden. I have plucked my myrrh along with my spices. I am sleeping, but my heart, my divinity, wakes. Jesus, or Joseph stood there, his hand dripped with myrrh, and myrrh ran over his fingers to embalm the one who is incorruptibly, incorruptibility itself. That imagery is from Song of Solomon 4, 12 through 16, and 5, 1. So if you read it, it has nothing to do with a tomb. I'm going to read it. Here we go. Pages are stuck together. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. With all choices fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Now, if you were to actually look at that, you'd find out that Solomon is talking about what? His wife's body. This is about, he's admiring his wife's, his wife's body. Um, now, the, so you've got a lot of spices in that text. And then it, you can, it can keep on going. Awake, O north wind, and come, and south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. So you have the woman's body smelling and enticing. And then let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. 5-1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey and drank my wine with my milk. Milk. Eat, friends, drink. Yeah. Okay. And so... You have all that imagery going on, and Greifenberg wants to talk about how Jesus is going into the tomb. So, 
remember from our time talking about Song of Solomon. But, of course, if you want to look at the uh, resurrection window, the resurrection window has what shape behind it? I don't know if you guys remember any of this. Um, it's an almond shape, a man, a man, uh, mandorla. That is the birth canal. So Jesus is, goes into the tomb, and the tomb becomes a womb. So the whole death and resur- so the death of Jesus and going into the tomb is understood in terms of nuptial imagery, where Jesus is planting himself into 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 the tomb into which he will be born out of the tomb. Again, that's not the only way that Scripture talks about it, but this is the way Greifenberg's using it, and she's not the only one. This is a, there's a long tradition of this. Krista? I thought it was, uh, that it was an empty tomb. Yes. Now, Greifenberg makes that point. Isn't it fit... I might get ahead of myself. I can't remember if she said this already, right? Isn't it fitting that the tomb was... A virgin tomb, I think she uses, to mimic the virgin womb of Mary. So you have all these images kind of crashing together. Nuptial, birthing, all happening. Because they're, I mean, obviously they're connected. Don't get me good. Yeah, never mind. Mother's Day is always a fun day for me. All right, well, uh, let's just... Think about why Mother's Day is a funny day. Because we always talk about like being a mother, right, and like raising children. But of course, Mother's Day doesn't start with raising children. It starts with nuptial imagery. Just leave it at that, right? So, anyways, never mind. I'm, I'm going to stop right there. But all I'm saying is that Greifenberg. It sounds strange because we don't like to talk this way. It's not. We actually do talk this way. We just kind of talk in more sanitized versions of it. Okay. So, did anybody read that paragraph by chance and think, oh, hey, that's, that's, she's, she's using the Song of Solomon? No, because you were probably thinking of like Matthew 28 or Luke 24 or the resurrection text, right? Yeah. Holly. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, and that, that's exactly right. So it, it's supposed to be passionate. Um, but again, what her writing is not necessarily, you know, kind of didactic, right? It's image-based. So again, she's writing in a way that makes you picture something in your head. Or even like smell or taste or feel. All right, now the next long quote is, uh, again, I think a great quote. And it doesn't have too much to do with nuptial imagery. It just, I just wanted to use this because I didn't want to go back looking for other quotes. These are just ones from uh, the last sentence there that I bold and italicize is the fact that there is this melting together, this inseparable, like they're, they're coming together. But aside from that, tangential from that, is the, uh, 
The children of light should learn this clever thing from the children of the world and keep the sepulcher of Christ, or rather Jesus, in their hearts so that he is not stolen from them. Isn't that, I lo- Isn't that great? Man. So G- your heart is the tomb of Jesus, and we don't want Jesus to be stolen out of it. I never thought about that before, so that's why I just I love that, Ali. Um, but I also felt like that was kind of flipping, as in like Jesus is living, his heart living, not his entombment. Yeah. So okay. So right. So then okay. So let's yeah. That's right. That's good. Um, just be stolen. Well, okay. So this is the text where. Uh, the, the, the scribes go to Pontius Pilate and says, hey, we've got to get some prison guards on there because his disciples are going to come and take, that, take, take it away and then they're going to tell everyone he rose from the dead. So she's meditating on this whole situation. And, and again, her emphasis is then kind of like practical life, like how can this be applied to me? So she's like, oh man, they spent a lot of effort trying to keep Jesus in that tomb. Why don't I spend a lot of, I mean, I need to spend a lot of effort. But now when she says a lot of effort, I mean, I need to meditate and keep Jesus in my heart. Now, the thing is, though, okay, this is really important for us because when we look at the cross and we say our life is in his death, that is an image of what? How is our life defined according to his death? It's not literal death but it is love and faith. So I think she's going with the same idea as applies. It's just the continuation of that same. Jesus dies on the cross. He goes into the tomb. These are all signs of his, how far will he go for us? And so that enlivens us to live. That we want to keep Jesus in our heart. So, yeah, it's definitely conflicting because we, we, we think, oh, wait a second, we're talking about Jesus' life, not his death, as our life. Jesus' life is our life. But the, the, um, the power or the, the, the thing that drives us is Jesus' love, and his love is precisely seen in his death. So that's, that's the irony of that whole thing. Um, right? How do you receive yourself completely? when you give yourself up completely. How do you fully live yourself? How do you, how do you, you know, by dying to yourself? So that's, that's, that's the, the irony or the opposite that's happening in this passage. Julie. I'm looking at the quote that you italicized. Isn't that set me as a seal? That's song, song, song. That is true, yep, absolutely. Yep. And uh, by the way, the set, set on the seal, I don't think I used that. Um, Johann Gerhard, or no, Paul Gerhardt is a hymn writer. Yeah, I know, it's it, Gerhard and Gerhardt. John and Paul. Uh, John is the theologian, Paul is the hymn writer, the poet. Hymn writer. Okay. Beatles, Beatles joke there, John and Paul. Um. Oh, okay, yeah, so uh, the seal, set my seal on my heart, is from Song of Solomon, and that is a very popular usage in poetry and hymn, hymn writing. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, so the seal, 
is, okay, so in this instance, it is, indeed, press me like a seal. So she's using what? Like a wax seal. Yeah, to make it. But from, uh, do you have the Song of Solomon reference handy right there? Verse 3? Oh, 6, okay. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. That's verse 6. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Many waters cannot quench, my, quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be other, other, utterly despised, meaning that that's not enough. So she echoes that with this last sentence. All right, well, great. Well, anyway, so, okay, nuptial imagery. Great, okay, great. Perfect, excellent. Most of her references are related to eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. Um, I had to pull these quotes from a different meditation that wasn't translated in, in the book that I'm using for you guys, but... It's a meditation on the Lord's Supper. But in the Lord's Supper, the heavenly Jesus bridegroom truly becomes our husband, namely our holy and spiritual spouse with whom we are united in deepest love. So in the Lord's Supper, there is a, the, the coming together of two, two become one. Um, yeah, and she gets, she gets pretty, pretty uh, graphic there. Now, the other thing, though, is, is this is really interesting for Greifenberg, is that this notion of satisfaction. So she is, she is spiritually satisfied with God's word and sacrament. And that's really unusual. Because all through the Middle Ages, and even in the Reformation period, it is like Jesus grants this, but yeah, I'm not quite satisfied. In these writers, so like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, Teresa of Avalon, uh, uh, some pre-Reformation and then during Reformation, kind of what's called the mystic writers. So Greifenberg's really unusual, and that's really kind of a Lutheran distinctive, because the assurance of salvation gives her this satisfaction. Um, Yeah, so the Reformational understanding of the forgiveness of sins and being made righteous through faith alone gives Greifenberg the assurance that when she receives the body and blood of Christ, God is with her, in her, pleased with her, and loves her. He takes pleasure in her. And she can have a a good conscience or a clear conscience. So for Greifenberg, since the body of Christ enters the body of the receiver the Eucharistic union, the mystical union, the, is superior to a mere imagined engagement with Christ. Contra the enthusiast, that's a historical reference, I'll explain that in a second. A true physical engagement occurs, and God and the receiver remain merged eternally. Because of this wondrous event, the blood of Christ and its divine nature stirs up pleasure and joy. Thus she uses nuptial imagery to describe it. Should one not be happy, O oh, beloved, about you, when your arms close tightly around me? <laughs> All right, that sounds like Jesus, my boyfriend, and it? it's not. It's Jesus, my husband. Contra the enthusiasts. Now, that, that's a historical reference. So the enthusiasts were a group of kind of Reformation 
what Protestants who really downplayed or ignored the sacraments or even the external word of God. And they would believe that the Holy Spirit would just kind of come directly into them without external means. So that, again, this is something where she is writing in a way that if she's writing against them without being against them. She's writing for Lutheranism, not so much against enthusiasts. Enthusiasts turn out to be, uh, well, some enthusiasts become like Anabaptists, so like Quakers and um, Amish, but then others become like Baptists. And then there's some even like Reformed enthusiasts, but well, they're, they're, it turns out to be Lutheran enthusiasts too. But we won't talk about them. Well, yeah. It, it, so, I mean, it, it's probably not fair to, like, make an equal sign between those two, but you do see a lot of the same similar piety between them. Yeah. Okay, but um, the thing is, is about, uh, should not one be happy or beloved about you when your arms close tightly around me? She's making reference to receiving the Lord's Supper. The thing is, though, is she's not the only one. Philip Nikolai. I gave you, now you can bring out your hymn sheet. Philip Nikolai, hymn 398, O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright. Or 395. I wrote down 395, but is it 398? 395, okay, great. O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright. It's, I love this hymn. Jubilation, exaltation, bum, 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 bum. I, it's the last verse, maybe. Well, anyways, I uh, I got this from uh, actually I got this from a woman named Emily Lee. She wrote. She's a, a deaconess, I think, who through the seminary in Fort Wayne, I think, or River Forest. I can't remember. But um, she wrote about Philip Nikolai, and. It's kind of this web of Lutheranism. Somebody, somebody told someone about my interest in Greifenberg and kind of this whole nuptial kind of Lutheran mysticism thing. And they're like, oh, you should talk to Emily. So I did. And she sent me, she's like, oh, yeah, these hymns were really kind of controversial because they were a little too racy. I was like, really? I'm like, I'm reading in the hymnal, and it doesn't look that racy. She's like, well, let me send you the German. And there's a whole website now. I find out there's like a website that's all the German, and then like kind of a more literal translation. And I didn't put all the I didn't put all the um, verses from this, but um, I just kind of put the ones that were more most pertinent. So, uh, oh, ah, my pearl, my precious crown, true son of this is. Um, Verse 2, my heart calls you a lily. Your sweet gospel is pure milk and honey. Oh, my dear flower, Hosanna, heavenly manna, that we eat, I cannot forget you. Yes, that's exactly right. So now, the reason why, so this is, oh yeah. So as you take a look at it, you compare and contrast with the... the what, no, and that, that's where I want to show you that, is that you know, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with this imagery. Um, but in the original German from 
Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So I didn't put Philip Nikolai's dates on here. He died. He, he basically is a second generation Lutheran, lived uh, kind of the last half of the 1500s. I think he died in 1608, I believe. So um, he's before. Yes, Philip Nikolai. And Philip Nikolai, by the way, is one of the signers of the formula of Concord. So this guy is like, he's like a theologian. Again, so you have these like really smart guys who are like writing this really passionate. I used to call it touchy-feely stuff. But, um, so, uh, but of course then I want, so again, verse 3, he describes himself in terms of um, Eve, a living rib. My heart is sick and smoldering, wounded with love. What's that from? Anybody remember? Song of Solomon. I think chapter 6. Uh, okay, but what I really wanted to get to was, oh yeah, verse 4. It's actually on the other side of it. Take me like a friend in your arms so that I may become warm with your grace. To your word I come invited. So Jesus wraps himself around us. So Greifenberg, when she talks about Jesus giving her a hug, she's not the only one. Philip Nikolai does also. All right, so you, you get to see the, a lot of the nuptial imagery with the bride and bridegroom. Now, off the top of my head, O Morning Star, Fair and Bright, I don't think it has any, it has, maybe it has one reference to bridegroom or bride. Is that right? Verse 2, right? Okay. <clears throat> so it has in there, but it, it, it's really not obviously as, as evident as in the German. Yeah. That's it. Right. So, um, now again, I still love this hymn. I just, the reason why I want to show this to you is that like, this is not like someone, you know, Greifenberg, some unusual like, outlier. This is, like, this is like in our, theoretically in our hymns even. The next one is Paul Gerhardt. And he's a hymn writer. He is the same time as Greifenberg. He lives the same time as Greifenberg. Now, um, LSB 438 and TLH 142. I brought my TLH here if you want. TLH is the red hymnal, although I have a blue version. I don't know why. It, oh, you did? Okay. It's free, so I got it. I, yeah. Um, whose is it? guy named Harvey Reinke. I got it at the seminary. Somebody, you know, they give away stuff. Okay. Um, so OSB, I think, only has three verses. TLH has six verses. But the real original German, I think, has nine verses. And I, I, I just give a long quote. This is from John Kleinig. I didn't have enough time to sparse it out. But um, you take a look at it. The Lord's Supper is underpinning this. Um, but there is this image of heart to heart. This image of like the wounds of um, Christ. Again, you can't see it because I didn't get the German. I left it out. Sorry. You just have to. You can look up this article if you want. It's really nice. Uh, and then finally, to crown of a queen for my appearance with Christ as His bride before the heavenly Father. So you got this mystical union again happening. 
when Jesus gives himself in Holy Communion. And that is a, a lamb goes, goes uncomplaining forth. It's a Lenten hymn, but it's also a Lord's Supper hymn. But it's, re- it's really great. Really powerful. Oh, so the whole point, though, is, is that I bullet point John Kleinig's. So it's missing completely from the LSB. And then in TLH, you get a little of it. I mean, yeah. I think he's harder on the hymn than it actually is uh, from the TLH. I'm like, wow, this is, there's, it's in there. You can see this. All right. But the whole point, though, is, is that one of, fav- one of Gerhardt's favorite images comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. By the way, who in the world is Paul Gerhardt? I forgot to tell you. Hymn writer, famous hymn writer, and uh, has lots of hymns in our hymnal. Awake my heart with gladness. Awake my heart with gladness. Now rest beneath shadows. I think that's Gerhardt. Yeah. Uh, it's an evening. Shadow. Which that's a great hymn. I love that hymn. It's one of my favorite evening hymns. Yeah, Krista. He was a pastor too. Right. He was Lutheran. Yes. And he was even he had to leave his church. That's right. Which one? He had what? Great. Chris, yeah, he had to leave his Why did he have to leave his church, uh, Krista? Because he was a Lutheran. That's right. Yeah. So he didn't have a Lutheran church. Well, they, it was um, related to the, um, what I mentioned earlier, when the, the, the hands got changed between the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. But I, I think, I can't remember if it was Roman Catholic or if it was uh, Calvinist or not. I can't remember. No, Calvinist was later. Okay. So, anyways, so the whole point, though, again, this is, I mean, these guys are writing these hymns under these circumstances, you know, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe I need to have more struggle, then I can write really beautiful things. I don't know. I'd like to. 17 hymns in the hymnal. He actually has a book of hymns called The Little Garden of Paradise, I think, Garden of Paradise or something. It's filled with the nuptials imagery. Um, yeah, verse, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I think, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, okay, great. So, anyway, so that's all from there. And then Joe, Johann Gerhardt, he is in between Philip Nikolai and Paul Gerhardt. I, I don't know why I put him in the order this way. But he, he, he might have written some hymns, but this is really, he actually has a, a, a book called Sacred Meditations, and he has a chapter on meditating on Jesus, the bridegroom of his soul. Those are really good meditations. Like, super good. Anyways, we don't have to go through that because we're, we're, we're right at time. Any questions or anything? I, I don't I just, you know, here's the thing. Like, I, I find this stuff very enriching and enlivening. Plus, I also think it's really helpful for us as we talk with young people about our faith and how physical it is and how we don't have to seek satisfaction in, you know, you know, debauched behavior. We can actually, we, all our desires can be satisfied in God and, and from a life of purity and righteousness. Not goody two-shoes, but full-blown passion. Last thing, or Maybe not last. I don't know. Holly. Um, real quick. Um, an encouragement for Kathy. I think 
you said something on Sunday when Professor Roman was here about confessionals and not knowing, like, did I really get forgiven? Was that you? It sounded like your voice on the recording. Yes, yes. no, that was me. <laughs> This is that's right, and that, that's really important because the sacraments are so important in this. How do you know Jesus is in you? I just ate them. I mean, you can't you deny yourself if you deny that. I mean, you you ate. I mean, something went in your body. Okay. How do you know you're baptized? Well, babies can't give you an answer, but how do you know you're baptized? Yeah, I just got splashed. I just got, somebody just splashed me. Um, how do you know you're forgiven? Well, they, you just told me. So you have the external coming to your senses. And this is, again... This is all within Paul Gerhardt's hymns, Johann Gerhardt's writings, is the emphasis on the five senses. And we get that in Greifenberg. I mean, there is a constant sensualness to our piety. Not sensual in the sexual, but sensual in the sense that it's physical. So how do I know Jesus is in me? I just ate the body and blood of Jesus. How do you know it's the body and blood of Jesus? Well, he said so. Uh, take it up with him. I, I, I don't know. It's, that's, take it up with him. And so, again, it, it's outside of our performance and our feelings. Because here's the thing. Your feelings will catch up. This is why I keep t- remember, the parable of the sower. It takes patience for the seed to blossom and grow. Aaron. Yeah. 144. 146. Uh, it says, Shall this divine word give way to the insanity of a brooding human brain? Love that phrase. By the way, I was going to say, What's going on in there? <laughs> this is su- that's such a great line. Uh, by the way, I meant, to st- I meant to say this like three weeks ago. Any of these like nice little things, write them down, email them to Pastor Bruzic, copy me. Because... Because, you know, it's one thing coming from me. <laughs> but if Pastor Bruce is like, oh, man, look at how Aaron DeGuy wrote this. Oh, I better put it in. Because if it comes from me, he's like, ah, it's just another crazy quote from Nelson. So, 
Well, I love that one, Erin. That's so good. Read it again. Read it again. Well, it, it, it continues to. She says, shall his divine word give way to the insanity of a brooding human brain? What's that? Page 146. Where? Down at the bottom. Not the very bottom. Very bottom. And then she says, oh, not that. Let us stay with Christ's word. He will, like the rod of Moses, swallow the serpents of doubt and smash the rocks of wrath. So that the ship of our obedience yeah. Makes me want to cry. I love that stuff. All right, so why don't we, why don't, this is what we'll do for next time. Because I say to myself, I'm going to do this every time, and I never do it. So I'm going to hold, I'm saying publicly now, so I'm held to it. Come, come next week with your, like, kind of like, we're going to start out class with, like, hey, what's your favorite line? Greatest hits. And it can be from any of the readings or next week's readings, and that's how we'll start. Uh, next week's, the, the new readings deal with, um, uh, on the other side of Jesus' life, his birth. And we're only going to go through part of his birth, because it's, it's, so, it's just so much reading. But, uh, like I said, we're going to take a few weeks with that one. And the text is uh, Luke chapter 1. It's the, magnific- it's the visitation and Magnificat. So. All right, thank you very much. Let's pray. Lord, uh, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, guys.